Howdy and welcome to Wise About Texas. This is Ken Wise, your host, and I want to thank you for tuning in today for a little Texas history. Well, this podcast passed a milestone this past week, over 200,000 downloads. I can't believe it. We're in all 50 states and 88 countries around the world. I want to thank each and every one of you listening to this podcast for its tremendous success. I'm recording this episode today and releasing it in 2018, right in the middle of the Triple Crown season for thoroughbred horse racing. The Triple Crown, of course, is are the three classic races, the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes. The Belmont will be coming up just a few days after this podcast comes out. And this year, we have a chance to have what will be the 13th horse in the history of horse race, American horse racing to win the Triple Crown. His name is Justify. He won the Derby and the Preakness, and now he has a chance to win one of the toughest trophies to win in all of sports, the Triple Crown. Well, why am I mentioning that on a Texas history podcast? Justify was born and was bred in Kentucky, but Justify does have a Texas connection because one of his owners is Windstar Farm, owned by Kenny Trout, who lives in Dallas, Texas. Now, Mr. Trout's not a native to the state, but he is a Dallas resident, so we're going to claim him. So perhaps this year, another Triple Crown trophy will make its way to Texas. That's right, I said another, because as you might expect, Texas already has a Triple Crown. One of our biggest and most historic ranches bred a horse that nobody thought could run at all, much less race. But the little colt proved them all wrong, and he won it all. So let's go back to 1946 and get wise about Texas. We're actually going to start our story back in the 1800s to give you a little flavor of where this horse came from. There was a young man from New York who decided that he wasn't much for city life, where he was apprenticed to a jeweler. He, preser- he preferred life on the river boats that were so critical to the trade all over the country, but especially in the South. So he decided to become a river boat man, and his name was Richard King. Soon, while he was in Florida, he met an educated boatman named Mifflin Kennedy. The two men worked together until Kennedy took a boat up north for an overhaul, and the men sort of lost touch for a while. But soon Kennedy sent word to King that there was money to be made in Texas, specifically plying riverboats up and down the Rio Grande River. So to Texas they went. Now that's a short version of the whole story, but don't worry. In coming episodes, we'll dwell on the relationship between Richard King and Mifflin Kennedy and the King Ranch, but we need to get to the horses. King had prospered in the steamboat business and, as all Texans seem to, turned his attention to land. He was riding to Corpus Christi to attend what was called the Lone Star Fair, put together in 1852 by a man named Henry Kenny. He put this fair on to promote his new town, which we now know as Corpus Christi, And along the way on that ride, Richard King rode through what was called the Wild Horse Desert. Now, the Wild Horse Desert back then, the coastal plain between what is now Corpus and now Brownsville, was a sea of grass. Many writers uh, describe it as exactly that. It was fertile all the way to the coast, and the grass grew stirrup high to the horses. So King decided this is where he would establish a ranch. He bought a small ranch, relatively small ranch, along Santa Gertrudis Creek 
a little way south of Corpus Christi, naming it for himself, we now know it as the famous King Ranch. Well, fast forward to the 1930s. The King Ranch is now headed by a man named Robert Clayburg Jr., known around the ranch as Mr. Bob or to the Mexican workers as Don Roberto. Bob Clayburg was the grandson of Captain King. He was the son of Robert Clayburg Sr. and Captain King's daughter, Alice Gertrudis King. Now again, I'm leaving out a world of stories. The King Ranch invented a cattle breed and invented the quarter horse, which I'll discuss in a minute, and all sorts of things. But we're going to save that for a King Ranch episode because for our purposes, at some point, Mr. Bob began to look at thoroughbred horse racing. Now, the King Ranch depended on horses. You had to use horses to work cattle. You had to use horses to get around. And Clayburg, by all accounts, had a great eye for horse flesh. He also had a tradition of incorporating thoroughbred blood into his horse herd. In fact, horses were so important to the King Ranch that when Captain King, I think, paid twice as much for a good horse as he did for the entire ranch at one point. Now, Mr. Bob's wife, Helen, and his cousin, Caesar Kleberg, himself worthy of his own episode, encouraged Mr. Bob to do a little horse racing. So Bob and Helen started going to Kentucky to see the farms and started going to New York to see the races. Later on, uh, Mr. Bob would end up buying a farm in Kentucky for the King Ranch Thoroughbred operation, but that was later. Bob Clayburg uh, understood the value of incorporating these great thoroughbreds into the ranch herd. And one day, I'll tell you this story, before, before all this racing stuff, Clayburg was, was in his teens, and he didn't have any authority to buy stock for the ranch, but he was in Alice, Texas, and he saw a sorrel horse and her colt. Sorrel's a color. It's a brown color. And uh, he brought his cousin Caesar back to see the little colt. Uh, they both fell in love with it. They bought the colt, took the mother and colt to the ranch, weaned the colt, returned the mother to the ranch in Alice. And they never named that little colt, but he was a great horse. And he was also sorrel like his mama. And so he just became known as the sorrel horse or later old sorrel. Well, old sorrel's grandson was named Wimpy P1. And that was the very first horse registered as an American quarter horse. So Clayburg had had quite the impact on the horse industry already when he began racing. So on to the thoroughbreds. Another story has it that Bob Clayburg was visiting another friend's ranch and saw a big thoroughbred stallion that was muscled a little bit thicker than your normal thoroughbred. And that quality was something that he really liked. In other words, the thoroughbred was muscled more like a quarter horse, most likely. So he bought the stallion. The stallion's name was Chicaro. Now, it's C-H-I-C-A-R-O. I'm going to pronounce it Chicaro. It could be Chicaro. I'm not sure. That horse was bred by Harry Payne Whitney, who was a legend in the thoroughbred business. And there's an interesting story about Whitney, by the way. He was a great horse breeder. He had the first filly, the first female three-year-old to win the Kentucky Derby. That horse was called Regret. He was also a 10-gold polo player, which is uh, in polo, you were, you're rated, your handicap is called your goal rating, um, one being low and 10 being the best you can achieve. And Whitney was a 10-gold polo player. I also read one account that Whitney began breeding quarter horse stallions to thoroughbred mares, which was the opposite of what Clayburg would do. And he ended up with what is the common type 
of American polo pony these days. But um, Chikaro's sire was called Chicle, and his dam was named Wendy. Now, that's an unusual name for a horse, but her sire was Peter Pan, so maybe it wasn't so unusual. Both Chickley and Peter Pan were multiple stakes race winners. In horse racing, a stakes race is the highest level of competition, and, and within that, there are graded different quality of stakes, grade one being the highest. Well, Chickley and Peter Pan had won multiple stakes, and so uh, Chikaro came from a great bloodline. And Clayburg started to think how he wanted to breed this stallion. Now, there's several, when you're talking about breeding horses, there's several unique terms, and we don't need to understand them thoroughly, but um, you look at the horse's pedigree, there's uh, terms like line breeding, terms like inbreeding. Uh, there's a term called nicking, which is the idea that, that lines of horses from certain stallions do well with lines of certain mares from other stallions. A good match in that whole puzzle is called a nick. Uh, not everybody in the industry is a big fan of nicking, but it is very, very commonly used. And of course, with computers these days, you can imagine how thorough you can be. Well, Clayberg didn't have a computer, but he did have a great eye for horses. Um, so one day, looking for a match for Chikaro, this was 1936. He's riding through the Lexington countryside, and he looks out of the car into a pasture and sees what he considers the perfect mare. She looked exactly like he wanted uh, a mare to look. Turns out that mare was named Corn Silk, and she was a daughter of Chickley. So she would have been a half-brother to Chikaro. And in, now, if you match those two horses, you're inbreeding, but inbreeding in thoroughbreds can be very effective if it's used wisely. Clayberg didn't know it in the time. He didn't know the pedigree of that mare at the time. He just looked out there and said, that's the kind of horse I want. Um, coincidentally, shortly thereafter, Corn Silk and all the other mares from that particular owner came up for auction. Clayberg bought every one of them. He also ended up with a stallion from the same owner named Bold Venture. Bold Venture had won the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness in 1936, so this was potentially another very serious thoroughbred sire. And after all of that, Bob Clayburg Jr. and the King Ranch were definitely in the racehorse business. Well, Clayburg continued to look uh, for good stallions uh, and mares that fit his idea of how a horse should look on paper as well as the pasture. He found another stallion named Equipoise, on C.V. Whitney's farm in Kentucky. C.V. stands for Cornelius Vanderbilt. He was Harry Payne Whitney's son. Equipoise had been horse of the year. He had a tremendous race record. Uh, Whitney also had a mare on the farm named Incandescent, and both Equipoise and Incandescent had horses in their lines that Mr. Bob liked. So Clayburg bred Equipoise and Incandescent, and they had a filly, filly being a a female foal. Uh, unfortunately, the filly was very sickly. She was born a little bit early. They almost put the horse down, but the vet went all over it at Clayburg's orders and found an abscess, which they managed to fix. The horse healed. The horse was named Ewal, I-G-U-A-L, Spanish for equal, but that mare, the mare was never able to race, but she had such a good pedigree that Clayburg kept her in the herd. Um, he bred her a couple of times, but in 1942, he bred her to that stallion I mentioned earlier that he bought from Kentucky named Bold Venture. And on March 26, 1943, 
Their foal was born on the King Ranch in South Texas, a little chestnut colt that would come to be named Assault. Well, I've mentioned on this podcast a couple of times that I used to rodeo, and anybody that's owned horses, and it doesn't matter what you did with them, raced them, played polo, rodeo, dressage, jumping, anything, you know that horses spend lots of time trying to get themselves into trouble. Well, Assault was no different, although Assault was the victim of an accident. Assault was scampering around the pasture one day, as foals will do, and he stepped on a wooden surveyor's stake, and the stake went right through the frog of the hoof. Now, the frog of a horse's hoof is a padded, basically shock absorption feature, and it's very soft. Well, when the stake went through the, that part of the hoof, it was extremely painful for Assault and was not likely to heal such that he was ever going to be able to race. So Clayburg ordered the horse put down, which, of course, none of us like, but is the unfortunate reality of the horse business. And horses have to be able to stand, and uh, Assault was going to be in so much pain. But the veterinarian on the King Ranch thought maybe this horse could be saved. His name was Dr. J.K. Northway. He was a grandson of a San Jacinto veteran, just like uh, Bob Clayburg Jr., by the way. And he was a veterinarian for the U.S. Cavalry in World War I. Northway thought that Assault had a chance. So he disobeyed the orders, and he took little Assault and Assault's mother to the vet clinic to see what he could do for the horse. He recruited the sons of the King Ranch workers to take turns watching the colt as he healed and to change the special bandages that Northway developed to keep ointment in, on the hoof. Well, eventually the foot healed. The problem was the hoof wall, the outer covering of the hoof, was very, very thin. And the reason that's important is you nail the horseshoe to the hoof wall. So if the hoof wall was too thin, it was very difficult to get a shoe on a salt. So the farrier had to be a little bit of creative, which they did. They developed a special shoe just for assault, and they sent him out into the pasture to learn to be a horse and to grow up. Well, assault immediately fell down. In fact, assault fell a lot. He continued to stumble when he was walking. He stumbled when he was trotting. But the folks at the ranch started to notice something. Amazingly, when assault ran, he didn't fall. So maybe there was some hope. Well, the next stage in Assault's life was the weaning and breaking stage. Now, weaning is always stressful, but Assault made it through that process. Breaking a racehorse is not the kind of breaking a horse that you sometimes see portrayed in Western movies. Uh, breaking is a, very, is a much more gentle process, and the person that broke Assault on the King Ranch was Lolo Trevino, although others also worked with him. Lolo used patience and gentleness, and he got Assault used to having something, being a racing saddle, and someone for the jockey being on his back. Well, at that, after Assault was broken, and just so we're clear, breaking just means that you get the horse to tolerate something and someone on his back. I don't want you to misunderstand that term. After the horse is broken, you need a trainer. Well, Bob Clayburg had met a great horse trainer named Max Hirsch. Hirsch, it turns out, was also from Texas. He was from Fredericksburg, Texas, and both Hirsch and Clayburg had descended from German immigrants who came to Texas in the early days. 
Hirsch already had a great reputation as a trainer. He had trained horses for several notable owners. One of them was Arthur Hancock, who started the uh, still successful and very famous Claiborne Farm in Kentucky. That's the farm that stood Secretariat as a stallion. And Hirsch also trained, one of his other famous clients was Arnold Rothstein. Now, any of you fans of early gangster movies will recognize Rothstein's name. He was a notorious New York underworld figure, very famous, uh, mentored several other famous gangsters, including Lucky Luciano. And Hirsch had trained some of his horses. Now, that's a lot of pressure. Funny story about Hirsch. He had started riding racehorses in Fredericksburg and one day decided he was just going to run away from home and become uh, involved in horse racing and so he decided to stow away on a train going to Baltimore. And the way he did it was he got a job loading that train. Well, in the hot Texas sun, he started taking clothes off and uh, eventually had to jump on the train as it was leaving while his clothes and shoes remained in a pile on the platform. So Hirsch arrived with very little clothing in Baltimore, Maryland during a snowstorm. So you know he had to be tough. Well, Clayburg hired him as a trainer. And every November, he'd come down to the King Ranch to look at the horses that were going to ship to, uh, it was Columbia, South Carolina, is where Hirsch had his training center. And Assault was shipped to train with Hirsch, even though Hirsch no doubt would have seen him in Texas and uh, did not think that he could run with that bad foot. And, of course, if you're walking, watching Assault walk around the pasture, you're seeing a horse that can barely walk or trot without falling. Well, Hirsch found a blacksmith uh, that could shoe assault and he put him into training because after all when he ran he was okay so the time came for assault to run his first race which was going to be at belmont park now in thoroughbred horse racing every horse every registered thoroughbred turns another year older on january 1st so it doesn't matter when the horse was born assault for example was born in march of 1943 he would not turn two technically until March of 1945, but on January 1, 1945, he would be called and classified as a two-year-old. Well, this was June 1945, so he was in fact two. Uh, Germany had just surrendered, of course, ending the European theater of World War II. Uh, during the war, there had been a moratorium on horse racing, which was not very popular, but it was lifted after the German surrender. And so Hirsch entered assault in a four-and-a-half furlong maiden sprint. Now, let me explain what that means. A furlong is an eighth of a mile. So four-and-a-half furlongs is a little over half a mile. A maiden race is a race for horses that have never won a race. You're called a maiden until you win a race, until the horse wins. When the horse wins, it's said to have broken its maiden. And a sprint is a race that's shorter than a mile. So this was uh, four and a half furlong and sprint mean the same thing. Well, Assault walks out on the track for his first race, stumbles, and almost falls down. And nevertheless, they got him in the starting gate. He ended up 13th, and it turns out that 13th was the lowest that Assault would ever finish. Hirsch decided to get a jockey named Warren Mertens on him for the next race. And the next race, by the way, was only eight days after the first, which is a very short time, especially by today's standards. Assault ran fifth. He ran in his third race. He ran second. This time he was wearing an apparatus on his face called blinkers that, that prevent the horse from looking to the side and behind him, uh, which horses will sometimes do and get distracted. 
and with his new headgear in July at Aqueduct Racetrack in New York, Assault won his first race. Well, on August 5th, 1945, and that's the day that the Enola Gay dropped the first atomic bomb on Japan, Assault won his first stakes race, one of those high-level competitive horse races back at Belmont Park. So his career was off and running, so to speak. As a two-year-old, he ran a total of nine races, winning two of them. Well, January 1 came around, and Assault turned three. Well, the three-year-old year is the year of the classics. The Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes, all races for three-year-olds. Only three-year-olds are eligible. So that third year is a very important year for a racehorse. Well, Clayberg and Hirsch decided that they were going to try to get Assault ready for the classic races and see how he did. Assault ran in a race called the Experimental Free Handicap on April the 9th. Now, keep in mind the Derby is the first Saturday in May, so we're within a month of the Derby at this point. But Assault won the race. At the end of the race, he was not even having to run as hard as he could. So Hurst thought he might have some potential. So the next race he picked was a race called the Wood Memorial, which is still run and is a very prestigious and rich race. This would be the race where Hirsch would find out how good Assault might really be. This race was only 11 days after the experimental free handicap and only two weeks before the Kentucky Derby. That's just an astounding proximity of racing. But back then, that's how it was done. Well, Assault was not the favorite in these races. The Wood Memorial was no exception. But of course, Assault didn't know that, and he went out there and whipped the competition by two lengths. Even that was not enough to convince all his connections that he was a great horse. In fact, the jockey even after the Wood Memorial win, didn't think Assault was good enough to win the Kentucky Derby. And I suppose if your horse is almost falling down as it walks to the starting gate, you might well believe that. In those days, there was a race on Tuesday of Derby Week called a Derby Trial, and a lot of trainers would use that as kind of the final workout for the horse before the Derby. Well, Assault was wearing some special kind of boots, of course, to protect uh, his bad foot, and the track was muddy, and his boots, his little, they called them Oregon boots, these special boots on his hooves filled up with mud and water, so he only finished fourth. Those boots were on there not only to protect his bad foot, but he also had a tendency to strike himself with his hooves as he ran, which some horses do. That's not all that unusual. So those boots were designed to protect his feet and his legs. Well, Derby Day came around that Saturday, the first derby to be run after the conclusion of World War II, one funny story I read about Derby Week is there's a famous hotel in Louisville, Kentucky called the Brown Hotel where they invented that now iconic Kentucky dish, the hot brown. And at that time it was called the Waldorf Astoria of Louisville. And apparently there was a big Derby owner's party and the owner of the hotel stood up and said, I'm building a new cocktail lounge and I'm going to name it after the winner of the 1946 Kentucky Derby. So he was one person who probably thought Assault was not going to win. The 100,000 plus people in the crowd were very excited. This was supposed to be the first derby on television, but they had a little uh, broadcast worker strike, so this one didn't quite make it. Uh, Clayberg's silks were brown with a cream-colored brand of the King Ranch, now called the Running W. Assault stumbled his way onto the track and immediately stopped and started looking around at at all the hoopla. Now, that's not all that unusual, and he didn't cause any trouble, but his jockey noted that if you ever tried to hurry him, 
you were in for a rodeo. The favorite in the race, of course, was not the stumble-footed assault. It was a majestic horse named Lord Boswell. Assault did go off, however, at 8-1. to one. When they came around to the back stretch, Assault was running along the rail. One of the leaders started slowing down a horse called Spy Song, and there was an opening for Merton. So he took out the whip, struck uh, Assault one time on the flank, and Assault shot up the rail. He pulled away with every jump, and he ended up winning the 1946 Kentucky Derby by eight lengths. At that time, only three horses had won the Derby by that much. Assault tied their record. When he galloped out, which is the time period when horses are slowing down, they don't just stop, they gallop out, he went all the way into the backstretch. Assault was the first horse bred in Texas to win the Kentucky Derby. What might his jockey thought? Well, after the race, his jockey said, quote, no, he didn't run like I expected. I didn't know he was going to run that fast. So maybe now Mr. Mertens was even convinced how good Assault was. One of the headlines in the papers the next day was, it wasn't assault, it was murder. They were a lot more creative back then. What about the bar in the Brown Hotel? Well, the owner of the Brown had to apologize and break his promise because he just couldn't bring himself to invite anyone to come have a drink in the assault room. But I have a feeling all was forgiven. Well, on to the second leg of the Triple Crown. Amazingly, the Preakness in 1946 was run just one week after the Kentucky Derby. Uh, This year, 2018, and and for many years prior, it has been run two weeks after the Derby, which is a very short time for these great racehorses to come back. But in 1946, it was only one week. There were some fresh horses in the Preakness, no doubt going to give Assault a run for his money. When the race started, Assault was bumped around a little bit, which sometimes will cause horses to get a little nervous or stop running, but it didn't seem to affect Assault. Now, the Preakness is a little bit shorter than the Derby, so Mertens didn't wait long. As they were going down the backstretch, he took Assault around the field and put him in the lead, which will take a lot of gas out of a horse. But Assault did it so fast that he ended up four lengths ahead of the field when they were coming into the stretch. Mertens was a little bit uncomfortable because that horse, Lord Boswell, was also in the Preakness and was bearing down on Assault. So Mertens went to the whip to remind Assault that he needed to go, and Assault actually ducked the whip. So Mertens put it away and just trusted Assault. Assault hung on to win the Preakness by a neck. Two-thirds of the Triple Crown belonged to Texas. Incidentally, uh, for those of you listening to this in 2018, that's exactly the kind of race that Justify had in the Preakness. And Assault, just like Justify, hung on to prove how good he was. Well, the third race of the Triple Crown, the Belmont Stakes at Belmont Park in New York, which is known as the Graveyard of Favorites because so many horses get upset there. The Belmont is the third leg of the Triple Crown and was going to be a severe test. Just how good was Assault? Was he going to be able to hold his form and win the Belmont? The Belmont, incidentally, is a mile and a half long, the longest of the three Triple Crown races. Coming at the end, the horses are, are at their most tired. So much can happen in the Belmont Stakes. Was Assault good enough? Was he too tired? Was he going to be able to hang on? Was his foot okay? Was this the race where he was going to get beat? Well, there were three weeks between the Preakness and the Belmont, and trainer Max Hirsch had worked Assault twice at the mile-and-a-half distance, including with other horses, which will sometimes teach him 
to race under pressure. The horses entered the starting gate and Assault faced the biggest test of his career. He stumbled. When the gates opened, Assault's head went straight to the ground. Mertens managed to hang on. Assault regained his footing and broke out in seventh place. Assault was quick, however, so he moved up to fourth fairly quickly, and he was on the rail where he liked to be. But he was still way behind the leader. Around the far turn, Assault began to make his move. That's a little bit early at Belmont, but he had a lot of ground to make up. He bumped into a horse named Hampton, but it didn't slow him down. As they came down the stretch, he had two more horses to beat, Hampton and Natchez. He bumped but overtook Hampton. Merton's put his eyes, put Assault's eyes squarely on Natchez, and Assault chased him down, winning the Belmont Stakes and the Triple Crown by three lengths. To win the Triple Crown, you have to win on three different tracks, three different races, and three different distances. It is incredibly difficult. Amazingly, Assault was the third horse in the 40s to accomplish that. That was a great decade for racing. The first was Whirl Away in 1941, the second, the Great Count Fleet in 1943, and Assault in 1946. As for the horse, it turns out Assault loved chocolate cake. So his trainer had a special chocolate cake made brown and white in King Ranch colors, and Assault ate the whole thing. Assault didn't retire with his Triple Crown victory. He kept running. He ran as a four-year-old. He won two of the biggest races in America, the Brooklyn Handicap and the Suburban Handicap. He would carry weight, uh, a lot more weight than the other horses, and he would still come out on top. He also raced as a five-year-old, a six-year-old, and a seven-year-old, although he never was quite as good as he was when he was a three- and four-year-old. Overall, he raced 42 times. He won 18, and 15 of those were stakes. He finished second six times. He finished third seven times. In 1946, as you might expect, he was voted Horse of the Year, which is the biggest honor a horse can receive in thoroughbred racing. He was going to retire at six. He went to pasture, and they were going to breed Assault to several of the mares, and not one of them became pregnant. That's right, poor Assault was sterile. That's why he was returned to the track as a seven-year-old. Assault was eventually retired to the King Ranch, where he lived a very long life and died in 1971. He's buried on the King Ranch. But despite not having any descendants, we should all remember the club-footed comet in 1946 when Texas took the Triple Crown. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Wise About Texas. Uh, again, I'm releasing this the week before the Belmont Stakes, so let's go see if Justify can become the 13th horse to win the Triple Crown, enjoying the likes of the club-footed comet Assault. Take a minute and go like the Wise About Texas Facebook page. You find the show on Twitter, at Wise About Texas. Same handle on Instagram, at Wise About Texas. If you get a minute, leave a review on iTunes. Thanks to everyone who's left some great reviews on there. It helps people find the show, and we really appreciate it. I've gotten some great feedback from listeners about potential show ideas, a couple of which I'm working on right away. So have a great summer, everyone. Tell a friend about Wise About Texas. Go out and do something for Texas today. And until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.